Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us on the Faculty Podcast. This is a special podcast where we are speaking with prominent Asian litigators in the Vancouver Commercial Corps, and I thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. Okay, you're welcome. So the first question I have for you is: You come from part Chinese background, and I'd like to ask you what has being Asian meant for your career. It's been a plus and a minus. At the beginning, when I first came out of law school, I had a double hurdle to face. My class was the first graduating class that had 20% women, and there were very, very few Asians that I can recall, maybe two or three. So we had 20% women for the first time and a very, very small percentage of Asian. So I had both an Asian and a woman at a time when the industry wasn't quite ready to deal with a large number of women graduating from law school. So in my graduating class, there were 45 women out of 220. And I'm going to say maybe two or three of those were Asian. I'm not saying there are two or three women. I'm just saying two or three of the graduating class were Asian. And so when we came on the market, I wanted to be a litigator. And that was a completely new thing for a woman and an Asian woman to want to be a litigator. So my classmates were facing a lot of resistance, I would say. Uh, and a typical question would be, well, what do you think my client's going to think if I put a woman on a file? I mean, that was sort of a standard kind of response. The graduating class I came from, about six of the top 10 were women. And most of them did not have job offers. So that kind of gives you an idea of how it was. Unbelievable. And a large percentage of the women were in the first quartile. And still, a large number of them never got a, a position. So specifically in my case, I held out. I had six offers, but I held out in the first five because I wanted to go with Tom Braidwood, who was then known to be the best litigator in the city. So I did that. I held out at a time when there was no such thing as an organized interview program. People just interviewed when they felt like it, pretty much. And uh, Tom Braidwood's firm interviewed quite late in the day. So I took a chance to give up on five different options in order to go with his firm. So in that respect, I took a chance. And when you ask me what is it meant as a, an Asian, well, not so much in Tom's firm, but generally in the industry, there was always this question. A woman and an Asian, what are we going to do with you? So... In general terms, that was a kind of response that, that I got. And the women in my class got the general response of, what are we going to do with a woman in my firm? What do you think my client's going to think? That was a kind of response that a lot of my classmates got. I graduated in 1976, so I was called to the bar in May of 1977. So that's the time frame you're looking at. Wow. If I could just push on a point, just explore that a bit further. The term that one uses and hears these days is kind of intersectionality, that idea that not only are you Asian, but you're also a woman. 
growing at a time when you also had the added dimension of a social environment that wasn't conducive to women in practice. But I'm going to add another layer, which is relevant for this particular podcast, which is the fact that you chose litigation. Part of the reasons for this podcast is if I were to go to any, I won't name names, but national firm names and look for partners and litigation, and I look for Asian faces, and there's just very few, frankly, in, 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 at least that what I see. But you're the pioneer because you're both a woman and Asian and a litigator. I'm wondering if the, the other women that you talked about, or perhaps the a- other Asians that you talked about, went into solicitor type pieces. And if you know anyone else that went into litigation specifically. Yes. The Asians in my class all went into solicitor's work. I was a forerunner to be an Asian woman litigator. There's so much question about it. And uh, I'm sure that that factored into some people's views, at least. That doesn't mean that everybody was of a certain view, but some people held that a negative view about that. What was it about litigation that was that would exacerbate the perceived, they're not real, but there was the perception issues. Was there anything that perhaps you faced that your colleagues, similarly situated colleagues in the solicitor profession didn't experience? Well, as a litigator, it goes without saying that you're supposed to be up on your feet. You're supposed to be able to take pressure. You're speaking to the court. You're dealing with clients. You're dealing with witnesses. And you're dealing with cross-examination. You're putting a case together, legal analysis. Being in the courtroom is an affray of battle. And the perception is, first of all, why would a woman be suited for that? And secondly, why would an Asian woman be suited for that? And so you have these kind of preconceptions, by some people at least, that got in the way. There's no much question about that. And the way I got over it was to win. I just put a lot of effort into my cases, (laughs) did a lot of legal analysis, outworked most people, and went in there and won. Results speak the most. You win, the next person is going to say, well, she won. Let's go to her. That's a case whether you're a woman or not. It doesn't matter. People like to go to winners. And if you establish yourself as someone who wins, whether you're a woman or not, people are going to start coming to you. And so notwithstanding being a woman and notwithstanding being Asian and visibly so, people came to me because they associated me with hard work, good legal analysis, competent lawyer, and a winner. Whether that perception is true or not is neither here nor there, but that was the perception. And just do sheer hard work and a lot of hours and working from bottom up. I just established a reputation like that very quickly and from one case to another. And as a result of which, I got my share of really, really large cases very early on in my career. In those days, that's a lot of money. It was $15 million. I was a second year call. I was a lead counsel on it um, against a very, very senior lawyer, yes. junior by a lawyer who was more senior to me. So, <laughs> anyway. If I could follow up on that, because my next question follows from at the outset, there's this idea that we're, we're facing these perception issues, these barriers, or these prejudices, if, if we can put them bluntly, and you have to outwork in order to overcome them. I can hear my mother's voice, the first generation immigrant voice saying, you got to work twice as hard to get to the same place to show the Canadian Caucasian population that Chinese people are just as good. And it sounds like that's almost what you had to do 
to establish yourself. Is that an unfair way of putting it? I'm not sure that I agree that I had to work twice as hard because I'm Chinese. I, I do say, though, that the key to being a really good lawyer, it doesn't matter what your race is, what your gender is, the key are several factors. First and foremost, hard work, careful and detailed legal and factual analysis, really caring about your clients because you're there to do a job and having a desire to achieve a good result for your client, playing by the rules, of course. And when you combine all of that, it actually translates into working very hard. I've seen a lot of lawyers who are not that interested in the sense that they, they don't want to spend the time. And if you do, and you leave no stone unturned, and you put your effort into it, you will win. Most of the time, you will win. Not always, because some cases can be won. And your best work doesn't necessarily result in a win. Yes. But your best work is what you need to do. And it's not because you're Chinese that you need to work harder. As a lawyer, you need to. That's the way I would put it. You, you need to win. You got to well, work. You to put win. the effort into a case yes. to do the very best you can. And, and that's independent of your race or your gender. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, whether you're Chinese, Asian or otherwise. If you want to be a good lawyer, that's what you need to do. And so that was the way that I approached the case. And I have to tell you that though I was at a time where there weren't too many mentors around, I was very lucky to have mentors like the famous Angelo Branca, who's long gone. He was the best criminal lawyer in BC. And he was a court of appeal judge by the time I came along. He liked me and he just spent time talking to me about how he's supposed to do a case. And there were a few other giants in litigation who took a liking to me and took the trouble to talk to me about what they thought I needed to do to become a really good lawyer. Not because I'm a woman, not because I'm Asian, but this is what you need to do if you want to be a good lawyer. So I got the benefit of that. Did you get that because you so visibly worked hard and people could see it and they wanted to nurture that? In the case of Angelo Branca, I was just called and I got up and argued an appeal in front of him over a conviction. And the question was whether or not this young guy's so-called confession was voluntary. And the bench were Mr. Chief Justice Farris, Mr. Justice Branca, and Mr. Justice Bull, three of the most senior <laughs> oh, and toughest yeah. Uh, appeal judges. Yes. And I don't know what I did right, but at the end of it, they called me in behind the bench, behind the scene. And Mr. Justice Branca just started talking to me, finding out about who I was, what I was doing. He knew that I articled at Tom Braidwood's firm and Tom Braidwood was his protege. But other than that, he really didn't know me, but he just liked me and started talking to me, kept in touch with me. Whenever I needed anything, he'd give me his two-bit worth to the point where he died of lung cancer. Oh. And literally on his deathbed, I went to see him in a hospital and he gave me his boxing trophy that he won, an amateur boxing trophy in 1932. He told his family that he wanted me to have that. Oh my but God. I didn't end up getting it because the family wanted to have a shrine for him oh. as a result of which I never got that, that uh, boxing <laughs> trophy. But that's Stop that counts in this case, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a 25-year call, and when I knew 
of you and your reputation, your outstanding stellar reputation. I, I had no idea you had done criminal law. I wouldn't say I did criminal law in any big way. I junior Tom Braidwood in a couple of cases as a mm -hmm. student. And I did that one case for this young guy who was 17 years old. But after that, I juniored on a couple of cases that required me to go to maximum security. And it involved some pretty brutal crimes. And I did not like that environment mm -hmm. and decided that I would stick with just civil litigation. So I only did very little criminal law. I wouldn't say I'm a criminal lawyer. It's fascinating to hear that you had that experience, though, just adding to that skill well, set. <laughs> let me put it this way. Going into the maximum security was not fun. No, no, no. It wasn't for me. If I can ask this question as a follow-up, the, the two sides of being an a Asian litigator, did you ever experience less than honorable treatment because you were Asian? I wonder whether being Asian in those times being a litigator had some challenges, but there's also perhaps a strength side, like times when being Asian was actually an advantage as you were going through well, the profession. You don't need to be delicate about this because in the first few years of my practice, I had the experience of having some people in the profession literally say, what are you doing in court? No. And oh. I had somebody say, I can't handle a woman, let alone an Asian. A senior lawyer saying that to me. And I had a couple of other occasions where the lesser lawyers, I would say, made fun of me because at the time I spoke with a slight English accent because I went to an English school. Mm. I've lost it all now. But at the time, I would still use occasionally some words that were very English. And they made fun of me as if that was some kind of accent that I have because I was Chinese when in fact it was English. And I had that kind of experience. And to say that there was none of that would not be correct. I did have some of that. But the truth is, though, as I became better known and became established, a lot of that really went away because people wouldn't dare do that anymore. But when you first start, nobody knows who you are. There were some people who actually did that. I'm sorry that happened. Do you recall or is there hope when actually being an Asian female lawyer had its advantages? Well, from the client's perspective, some clients who spoke perfect English, they were from Hong Kong and they preferred to deal with one of them, so, so to speak. They preferred to deal with someone who was from Hong Kong, which is where I was from. And they knew my family from Hong Kong because it's a fairly big name. And so some people just wanted to deal with someone who spoke Chinese. And when you have a situation where I was already established as a litigator and I also spoke Chinese, that was a plus. That attracted certain clients to me. But having said that, my best clients were all Canadian, white Canadians. Mm. But to go forward a little bit, I would say in the last 20 years, if you are Asian, I'll just go with Chinese because that's what I know better. If you're Chinese speaking, and you were a good lawyer, there's a big demand because of the dominance of China and the number of wealthy Chinese who have moved to Canada. Those people, they need lawyers. And generally, they would prefer someone who speaks the language. So there have been a number of Asian or Chinese women barristers that I've come across who have done pretty well, and they're fluent in Mandarin. It's no longer sort of 
it's stereotyping that if you're Chinese, you're Mao you must be only going to do solicitor's work. That's not the case. There are quite a lot of Chinese barristers now who are women who speak fluent Mandarin. Yeah. So in the last, say, 50, 20 years, I would say, and more so recently, I think it's an actual benefit if you're a good lawyer and you speak Chinese or any other language for that matter. I just think it's, it's actually a plus, not a negative. That's why I think all young Asian lawyers should be proud of their, of their heritage. They bring something to the table that other people don't. Having two languages is a plus, it's not a negative. And when all is said and done, the judges and the bench and everybody, they look at what you do. Are you a good lawyer or not? If you are, it doesn't matter what color you are, what race you are, what gender you are. If you're good, you're good. But from your client's perspective, if you're good and you speak the language, how can that be a negative? Right. I would say right now there's a big demand for litigators who speak, at least from what I'm aware of, Mandarin. Yes. Or Cantonese, mainly Mandarin. Because that's a yes. Language. Yeah. You've been in a position of practicing as, as you've you know, disclosed and shared with me for a long time now. I think you said 77. You were... 19, I was called to law in 77. 77. And so you're uniquely among all the guests that I've interviewed can speak to this, which is since 1977, what have you seen in the broad course of the history that you've been a witness to the changes in the profession? And the, the follow-up that I'll ask now would be of the Asian lawyer's role in that change. Well, there is definitely a much bigger market and demand for Asian lawyers now. Not only is being Asian not a detriment, I actually think it's a benefit. And and the reason is you've got to go with the times. As I said, though, first and foremost, you've got to be a good lawyer. You have to do all it takes to be a really good lawyer. If you do that and you also speak a, diff- a second language that is in high demand in terms of the clients, it helps you. It doesn't hurt you. And I really do think that at least in the last 15, 20 years, Vancouver has become a very cosmopolitan place. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, if you go way back when, Chinese immigrants were generally the lower class, the poor people. But when you start having the upper class, the rich people immigrating into the country, then it's a completely different set of demands and a different social strata. And being a lawyer who manages, who speaks the language in addition to all that, you're going to be thrown into cases that are a lot bigger than, than you otherwise would. Some Asian clients would simply go with someone who speaks Chinese. And if that lawyer is not experienced enough, that lawyer would go ahead and retain a senior counsel to lead. I've seen a lot of that happening. Hmm. But over the course of time, the not-so-senior lawyers become senior lawyers. Yes. And I see that as being you no longer need to hire a senior lawyer anymore. You can just do it. And if you can offer literally a package, you're a good lawyer and you speak the language, I don't see how that could possibly hurt. In my case, people came to me not because I spoke Chinese so much. It's because I had a reputation for winning. And the fact that I also speak Chinese is more or less the cream in the cake, but it's not the determining factor for anybody. As I've said to you before, all the biggest cases I've handled are not Asian. The, the vast majority of the biggest cases I've handled 
are Canadian. One of my biggest clients is the Polygon Group of Companies. Okay. Yeah. I, Brand name. I did work for Michael O'Day for years. Yeah. So it's got nothing to do with me being Chinese. It's got a lot to do with me succeeding in the cases. Now, don't get me wrong, everybody who's listening. I don't win everything. I just win my fair share. Although it feels I mean, like it sometimes. I win the big ones and I win a lot, but I do lose too. So it's sometimes you get a case. If you're good, you get a case that's a loser and they come to you because they think you have the best chance of giving them something. And so what would happen is I won't win, but I would I would control the damage. And so that's a win. I don't win everything. Nobody does. If you win everything, you're not taking enough cases. Chief Justice McCarrick used to say to me, you've really become a good lawyer. If you get cases that you can't win and people come to you, it can't be won, but they think you can do a magic. That's when you become a really good lawyer. Huh. It's hard work, though. It's hard to take a case. You know, is there a way I can win this? So, I, I do quite a bit of, of criminal white collar and regulatory defense. And, and I would say most of the time I'm finding is we need to contain the damage, right? You're yep. just, the charges are way overblown, but you did do something and maybe we can yep. contain the damage. But just because of the charge approval standard is so high. But um, I should say this as well, children. Being a litigator, what defines a good litigator isn't just what the person does in court. Hmm. Of course, you're in court because there's no other choice. But what you do in advising a client and getting a result without having to go to court is all part of being a really good lawyer. A litigator who's known for being really tough on the battleground, yes, yes, absolutely. But being a good lawyer doesn't just mean winning in court. If you can get a result without being in court, that in itself is a sign of a very good lawyer. A litigator has to do that too. Because sometimes a case is, should not go to court because everybody loses. So what can you do as a litigator to get the result without actually being in court? That's part of being good counsel. So people should not lose sight of that. You should never be afraid to be in court. But you should never think of it as being, I, I want to be in court, so I'm going to be there. Now, I, my reputation is, if I don't like something, I'm not afraid of being in court. I'll see you in court. But that doesn't mean that being a good lawyer is that I'll see you in court every single time. That no. doesn't necessarily achieve the best result. So I just want to make sure that the younger lawyers hear that and understand. Not to be stereotypical, but it, it's such an obvious reference to Sun, Sun Tzu, who said the general who can win a war without ever fighting a battle is a superior general. Words to that effect. The same guy whom I've read many times and I think is the best strategist in the world. One of the things is, Know your enemy better than you know yourself. Yes. And yes. Uh, that's another little thing that I go by a lot. Hmm. What does that mean for you when you say that, in terms of knowing your enemy better than yourself? Well, I generally find out everything I can. So I understand the opposing party. And I want to understand who my opposing counsel is. It's not every time that I know the person. There are a lot of times when I'm up against people I know very well because I've had many cases with them. Yes. But if I haven't had a case with that person, I generally want to try to find a little bit more. What makes that person tick? What is it that's going to make this work? What is it that is going to give you an advantage in either settlement or court? And what makes the opposing party tick? What is it that's driving them? You find that kind of stuff, you'll be amazed at how you can manipulate the situation 
legitimately to your advantage. Of course. Yes. Ah, oh, okay. At the time that we have, I've got a set of questions. We call it the three by two. You talked about boxing before. I'm an amateur boxer myself. I've got my passport and I and I go into sanctioned Western fights. boxing or Chinese boxing? No, no, uh, Western boxing, boxing BC and the kind of traditional rounds. I did do Kung Fu for many years, but it was the way my life has turned. My father was an elder in the Shaolin Temple Kung Fu. Wow. There was a certain school of Kung Fu that... And no one could open a school anywhere without his permission. He was a very accomplished martial artist. He's been gone a long time. Anyway. Definitely we're going to have to do a follow-up <laughs> for that one. But I, I, I call it the three-by-two from that boxing roots, which is three rounds, two minutes each. So it's, it's like a rapid-fire set of questions, three questions. Does any of this matter? Like having this podcast featuring Asian litigators? I would say that it could benefit the younger people so that they don't have a perception that isn't quite correct. What I hope to achieve from this is to give them the benefit of my experience, but also to give them the positivity of being a woman, being Asian. There are all sorts of positive things about that too. And what I really want to impart to the younger lawyers is not so much that you're Asian, you're Chinese, you're a woman or whatever. That's not so much what I'm trying to get across. I'm trying to get across what it takes to be a really good lawyer. And that's irrespective of gender and race. And the fact that being Asian, you should be proud of it. That's a heritage you should be proud of. It's a plus, not a negative. You've answered ahead of time my next question, but this will give you an opportunity to expand on the point. But the next question is, should these issues about gender, race, culture, background, should it matter? It should not matter at all. I mean, if you look at the lady of justice, she's blindfolded. Why should it matter? If you ask me whether it should matter, you mean politically? No, absolutely should not. But does it? Sometimes it does. Don't kid yourself. People have certain preconceptions. Some people are not as open-minded. You're always going to find some of that. But should it matter? No, it should not matter. To, in my view, who you are as a lawyer is what's key. The fact that you're a woman or Asian should be peripheral. That should have no bearing on what you actually do as a lawyer. When all is said and done, what you do is what's going to define you as a lawyer, not your race, not your gender. The focus should be on the work. The, the naysayers would say, but Rosemary, it does matter. So why are you saying it shouldn't matter? Because it does matter. So why shouldn't lawyers or why shouldn't a person who is legally trained use it? I'm not sure what you mean when you say it does matter in what way? What do you mean by that? That there is prejudice in the world. There is oh, people with different experiences, life experiences, personal experiences that they bring to the table to professionals. Well, you cannot control what anybody else does or thinks. You can't control that. All you can control is what you do. So if someone comes to you and that person has a preconception because he or she is against a woman or against an Asian, well, he or she shouldn't even be there. Why are they even seeing you? That's the case. They shouldn't even be there. That's what I mean. In a way, those people, you wouldn't run against them because they wouldn't choose you. They would choose somebody else. Mm. So that situation doesn't happen. When it does happen, and I've had one experience, is this. When I was a young lawyer, before I had my own practice, was literally just called, 
the firm had a gynecologist who had a matrimonial matter. So the firm said, she's really good. Go to her. The gynecologist said, she's very good. I'm very impressed. But I can't work with a woman. I'm a gynecologist. Now, you can't control that. So what happened was, that's fine. That's when the fact that I'm a woman made a difference. I'm not going to work for someone like that. Don't forget, it's a two-way street. You don't have to take every case that comes in. You have to like your client. If the client's a problem, don't take the case because it will not end up well. So in this case, as that's fine with me. I don't want to work with a guy who's got that kind of prejudice. Guess what? Two weeks later, he came back, would you take my case? I said, no. You had your chance. Good on you. Good on you. That was only a, what, a first year call. Anyone else would say, oh, I want the case because it was a pretty big case. I said, no, you had your chance. I don't want your case. <laughs> Final question. Will it matter in the future? From whose perspective? Oh, the question was designed to be deliberately open-ended. So I'll let you choose the perspective. Of okay, the- in three ways. Yes. First, from the bench's perspective, it will not matter. If anything, I think because of affirmative action and all those other things, it's very unlikely that you're going to have any issue with the bench. So from the bench's perspective, no. From a law firm's perspective, highly unlikely. Because as I said before, if you're a good lawyer and you also happen to speak a language that's in high demand, you bring value to the table. Would it matter within the profession as in other lawyers treating you? Maybe. Because some lawyers are not going to like you because they have their own prejudices. But I would say that's a very small percentage. And would it matter from the client's perspective? I would say if the client is Asian, for example, and you are good and you're known to be, if anything, you should be happy. But you and I both know that some Asians prefer to have a Caucasian lawyer. You can be the help, but not the lead. Because they have a perception that somehow a Caucasian lawyer will get a better hearing from the judge. That does happen. They're ill-informed. But again, that's another one of these little quirks that the discrimination is coming from a fellow Asian. So that does happen. But I would say that's less and less and less. Final question for our, our podcast session today. Many of our listeners are younger lawyers or or lawyers starting in their profession, what would you say to them today? What would Rosemary Basham today say to Rosemary Basham in 1977? What my mentors said to me, and I've said it to you already, which is this. First and foremost, to be a really good lawyer, there's no shortcut. You have to put in the hard work. Race and gender have nothing to do with it. You have to put the work required to become a really good lawyer. That means very studious legal analysis, studious fact gathering, putting the as many hours as you need to get it right, caring about the outcome for your client, and keeping always in mind what is in the best interest of your client. I would say that You're not a very good lawyer if you don't get paid. So you should always get paid, but your pay should not be the driving force in what you do. There is no small case. There are small lawyers. You don't say, because this case is small, I'm not going to give it the effort I should to win. 
that would be wrong. You either take the case and you do your best, or you don't take the case. I fully understand it. If someone comes to you with a case that they can't afford to pay your fees, you either take it and do part pro bono, or you say, I'm too expensive a lawyer for you. You should go somewhere else. And I do that a lot. A lot of people come to me, and there are times that I just say to them, I'm not the right lawyer for you because I'm at a stage in my career where I'm just too expensive for you. You can go somewhere else and get the same result. So you shouldn't come to me. Go somewhere else. So my point is, I don't care who you are, how many years call you are, you can't let the retainer dictate to you what effort you should put in to make the case work. You either say, I can't do it because you can't afford me, or you, you do what you need to do to do the best for your client. If you're not willing to do that, don't take the case. You're not being a good lawyer if you do a half-assed job, in essence. You're not being a good lawyer. Just to, to conclude this interview, I do want to share with you and, and the listeners that when I was a, an articling student and as a young associate, when I asked who I should be looking up to, who should I watch, I've had many mentors point you out in chambers, point you out in the courthouse, say, you got to follow Rosemary Basham. And I have, for all the lawyers of my vintage anyways, I can only speak for that piece, especially the Asian litigators. I thank you very much for being a role model to me and to all of us. I'm truly honored that you agreed to speak with me today. It's my pleasure. And for all the listeners, if you ever get into a difficult situation in a case, you know where to find me. If I can help you, I will. You've got a website. Yes, it's under bashamlaw.ca. Bashamlaw.ca. Correct. Rosemary Basham, Queen's Counsel, a leader of our profession, Asian litigators and Asian lawyers here in British Columbia, and a pioneer. Thank you very much for your time with us. You're very welcome. And good luck to everybody who's listening. You do well. Just put in the work. Thank you for tuning into the Factual BC podcast. Visit our website at factualbc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FacalBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facalbc.ca.